0: Hello and welcome to the Remaining Sane Finding Peace in Our Chaos podcast, a podcast about both theology and police work. I'm your host, Will. Today, I have on as a guest, my good friend and longtime police officer, Mr. Ken Palmer. Ken, how are you doing today? I'm good, Will. Good. So uh, just to start you mind, go ahead and tell us, what's your law enforcement background?
1: I went into law enforcement when I was 21 years old. I went to work with a Metro Atlanta Police Department in 1968 and stayed with them until 1974, and I decided to take a break, and I moved to a fire department at that time the time with the metro it was actually the Cab county police outside of atlanta during that time uh, i found it difficult to deal with the every day of course 68 through 74 was a different time for our country and everything else and uh, i was doing it with no sense of spirituality at all. Uh, I had really moved away, like a lot of teenagers do, uh, or young people. From, I moved away from God at a did very you, early age. Did you age.
0: grow up in the church? or? Yeah, kinda?
1: I actually grew up in an Episcopal church. And uh, because of my events in my family uh, when I was 13, I turned completely away from God and um, found myself with the police department without any kind of spiritual support or guidance in my life. Found it very hard to deal with. What what led you to be a police officer? <laughs> Mistake. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I came out of the military, uh, been in the Air Force, and came home with absolutely no idea of what I was going to do. And uh, I grew up in an area around Davondale Estates uh, outside of Atlanta, and I knew the police chief, and we ran into each other one day, and he asked me what I was going to be doing and I told him I had no idea, and he told me to get in the car, so I thought he was going to take me to jail, and uh, he took me down to the police department there at DeKalb County and went in, introduced me to the chief of police, and uh, we talked for about 15 minutes, and the chief said, uh, how would you like to come to work with us, and I said, okay he said well can you be here at 11:30 tonight and i started my first shift of course law enforcement was very different in that era as far as training concerned i never got to an academy until i was already about 6 months into my police career
0: yeah so so you had you know gone done calls been to people shot all this kind of crazy stuff before, without
1: any training at all right Oh, I'd been shot. Oh, you. <laughs> I, I got I got shot the sixth week on duty, uh, but so yeah, I'd been there and. Oh, what's that story? I'm I'm curious. Uh, I was riding with my training officer, and uh, we were on I-85 right off of I-85 in Atlanta, and got a call to a armed robbery at a uh, motel called the Golfland Motel. And we happened to be about maybe 400 yards from it. And we went down the uh, excess road, got out of the car. Each of us grabbed a shotgun. And uh, it had one of those drive-through porticos. And I'm left-handed. My partner was right-handed. And we both went to the wrong side of the wall. (laughs) So when the two subjects came out of the building, uh, we confronted them, told them to drop their weapons. They didn't, and they fired. We fired back, and when I kind of, being left-handed, stepped out from behind the wall, uh, I was exposed. And uh, I got hit, but the thing was, I didn't know I was hit. It, I was five minutes into it. We had already checked the subjects and were walking back to the car when my partner said, hey, Ken, that guy bled all over your pants. And uh, I looked down and realized I was shot, and that immediately hit the ground at that time.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there was no, like, flash of your life between your eyes, or it was just kind of the adrenaline got rid of the, you know, the, the feeling, right?
1: Yeah, I just, it never, it never uh, it, I was 21, dumb, and thought I was bulletproof. <laughs> and um, I, that that almost convinced me that I was not bulletproof. It was later on uh, in my career when I lost my partner on duty that I realized that uh, this, this job can get you killed. Yeah. And uh, up until that point, it had been just... And games, and then the reality of the job set in.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, that's something that personally I, I've, you know, I haven't lost a partner on duty, but, you know, just recently we had someone from our department die that I knew. That has kind of changed my, my outlook on some stuff because, you know, you realize that there are, you know, real world ramifications for this job around you, right? Like, you know, we're, that, that's one of the things that, that makes this job a little bit different than a lot of other jobs. The, you know, the, the worst thing that you can do professionally as, uh, let's say, a realtor is maybe you, I don't know, maybe you really makes a client upset about a, uh, a house. You weren't nice to them, you arrived late, they weren't happy, and so they, you know filed a complaint on you and and this, that, and the and X, Y, and Z, right? You had a bad day, you messed up, whatever. You have a bad day and you mess up as a police officer, you can end up either in dead or in prison or, you know, re- just, the ramifications are, I believe, a lot greater um, in, in this job. And don't get me wrong, there are other jobs where, you you know, I the, the first job that comes to mind where you can really mess up bad and it go really poorly for you is a firefighter, and then um, to a lesser extent like an attorney. Like you mess up somebody's money or their their case, and you end up getting disbarred and you know losing a bunch of money, maybe even going to jail for a little bit. But you know that we we live in the real world, right? And that that's something that I've learned so quickly is that this job gives you a Ph.D. in common sense very, very quickly.
1: <laughs> well, with no common sense, uh, you won't last in this job. No. Uh, there's a lot of things that go on with you in this job uh, that you don't realize that stay with you the rest of your life. Uh, I've been retired for eight years now, eight years and. In- In about two months, it'll be eight years. And um, it was a mentality that you get as a police officer that you're not going to die. I never walked out of the house and put on a badge and put on a gun and walked out the door thinking I was going to die. And... That is because if you do, you won't you won't be able to walk out the door. And that's the thing that stays with you if you do this job long enough. it stays with you all of your life. Um, it wasn't but three years ago uh, five years after my retirement, I had a heart attack and ended up having six bypasses. It never occurred to me that that might kill me until i was having a conversation with my surgeon afterwards and he was talking about how uh, i had asked about damage to the heart muscle and he said well ken he said when i had your heart out and i was looking and it struck me at that point that he had actually taken my heart out of my body and i went you could have died and so but that is the mentality we as police officers and I still consider myself as we as police officers build up in our mind and it's a dangerous thing and there's there's so many inherent dangers in being a police officer over long periods of time that is and and I can say this for firefighters too it do it for a long period of time, we tend to compartmentalize things in our brain. We see so much nasty stuff on the job uh, that you can't live with it daily, so you unconsciously or consciously take that incident and just kind of put it in a little box in your brain and say, I'll think about that later. Unfortunately, with us uh, in law enforcement a lot of times, we don't think it about it later and it leads to some bad things.
0: yeah, and it just it just pops up like uh, I, I can I've got a few calls that I can think of that you know, I see someone that reminds me of XY Z person that was out on i' I'll, I'll give a real good example. so the the first kid call that I had. Um, it was a 12 year old girl and their, their family only spoke Spanish. So I had to come out of sector cause I was translating for, or interpreting for the family. They, uh, the family did not know that this girl was uh, diabetic and apparently puberty, like puberty affects your insulin. I'm, I'm not sure about this at all, but it, it can almost kind of awaken you become way more susceptible to your, your diabetes as you go through puberty. Well, this girl was 12 years old going through puberty and uh, she had eaten something or this, the family had never realized ever that she was diabetic. And so she unfortunately ended up dying on the spot. Uh, and they had some kind of crazy diabetic attack and they didn't know what happened. And, uh, Call, they called nine one one too late, and girl, and the girl died. And I remember showing up and you know seeing CPR being done on a twelve year old who's just sitting there lifeless on the ground. That has never gone away. Um, and so sometimes when I see people that, or see houses that remind me of that, like I'll, I'll think of that, and you know that stuff like that, unfortunately, is the the burden that we with this vocation bear, right? Like we, you know, we're the protectors of society, but one of the, the bad problems is that not only do we protect people physically, but we also shield them from some of the, the really bad stuff that happens. So they don't have to see or smell or touch those, those images. Right. Um, well, Ken, one of the things that you mentioned, um, earlier, uh, I interrupted you after you said you had seven years on the job at DeKalb County. What what happened after that to lead you to more police?
1: Well, I'd been shot, I'd been stabbed, I'd had my skull fractured, and I thought I'd find a safer profession, so I went into the fire service. <laughs> <laughs> And they, I was in the fire service from nineteen seventy four to nineteen uh seventy eight and um it was while I was in the fire service that I developed a interest in uh fire investigations and so in nineteen seventy eight and it was during this time with the fire department that there was uh A fireman and his wife that I worked with um, led me back to Christ. And uh, that was a very important time in my life because everything changed at that point. In 1978, I decided that I needed to go back to school. And I was very fortunate to have... I had a wife and two kids, and I had a wife that said, go. And so uh, I went and ended up graduating from Mercer University and with a double major of biblical studies and uh, history. After that, I was offered a scholarship to uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. To pursue a degree in theology and uh, i went I, I took that scholarship and during that period of time uh I was working in churches during college and work and during seminary uh but it was during seminary that I found out that I was not a baptist <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got very in i got very much in uh touch with and curious about worship and my old background as a child as an Episcopalian came back uh, for that love of a liturgical worship type service and um, so when I came out uh, I pastored for uh, a year and decided I just was not going to be able to do that so i left and we came back to georgia and a friend of mine that i'd worked with with the fire department was now working with the state fire marshal's office and we were talking he said why don't you come to work with us at the fire marshal's office so you decide what you want to do and 33 years later i retired from there i Uh, Because of my law enforcement background, when I went with the state fire marshal's office, I became uh, part of the state arson investigation unit uh, in Georgia. Uh, All those investigators had to be certified firefighters plus certified police officers, and I was grandfathered in on my police officer certification. So I was capable of taking that job, and then later on in my career, uh, became captain of the uh, field operations for the state fire marshal's office uh, arson investigation unit, and that's where I completed my law enforcement career.
0: Yeah. So, one of the things that uh, we haven't dug into yet is that you know, we've talked a lot about patrol, right? You know, patrol responding on scene to stuff that's happening right then and there. Um, and those experiences. But we haven't really delved into investigations, which is a different side of law enforcement. And so for the people that are maybe not necessarily cops, what I'm saying is that the um, there are, as we all know, there's police officers, but also there's detectives, right? Right. All detectives are police officers. Not all police officers are detectives. So detectives, um, sometimes you, you joke with them and say that they're second responders, right? right. Like they'll show up after a crime has occurred uh, nine out of 10 times it's for a major crime where you need someone to do multiple days of investigation to figure the crime out. And so you know, you'd done seven years on the street and then been a firefighter for a little bit responding on the street to fires. And then you would move into investigations after going to seminary. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, uh, what, what are some of the the, the mental tolls that investigations take on you that maybe patrol doesn't, or are there? You, you understand what I'm saying?
1: Uh, the people who live in our area, uh, the Southeast, don't, uh, a lot of times have been referred to as the Bible Belt. But it's also referred to as the Burn Belt we have more arson fires in the southeast than in probably any other place in the country and in this northwest georgia chattanooga area more arson fires than anywhere else uh, so there there's a lot of fires but a lot of people don't understand the number of deaths that you have to deal with uh I know in our case in Georgia, the body of anyone who died in a fire was to stay on the scene until we got there and work with the coroner to uh, start our investigation with the body on scene, if if at all possible. And it's those fire deaths that stay with you for a long time. A lot of times uh, during my career with the fire marshal's office, uh, you'd work 75 to 80 fire deaths a year. Uh, When I became captain of the uh, unit, one of my responsibilities in field operation was I went to uh, all fire fatalities uh, that our unit was involved in. Uh, You mentioned children. not to minimize any life all life is precious but when you go to a fire scene to do your investigation and there is a child or children involved those cases eat at your heart eat at your mind eat at your soul uh And they don't go away, Uh, particularly when you find out that this fire was intentionally set. Uh, One case comes to mind that happened uh, in middle Georgia. Uh, Went to a scene in a trailer park where we had four children had died. Miraculously, the father and his girlfriend got out, and as we were conducting the investigation, it was obvious that it was a set fire, and then we found out that the father had put the children in this one bedroom, they were aging two to six years old. had put the children in the bedroom, set the room on fire, and then held the door closed. Uh, Those things stay with you, and those things can make you not want to be a police officer and just make you want to be a human being who can act out, and you, and you can't.
0: That that is something also that I know is very frustrating. I, I've been to a case, not really that drastic, but I, I've been to this this case. Um, long story short, a um, a homeless guy. Sexually assaulted a six-year-old in her own bed, and he, you know, he broke in. Yeah, and so, especially now, where um, the guy is getting not near as much prison as he needs, um, stuff like that really eats at you because you you see injustice in front of you, and you want
1: to make it right. Yeah, you know, see, a lot of people don't believe in evil, and. That day when I was sitting in the interrogation room with this man who had killed his own children for a totally frivolous reason that we don't need to get into. But looking in this man's eyes, I could see evil in this man's eyes. Uh, this, This man had no conscience. And he had no uh, empathy at all or remorse at all for what he had done. And those are the times that if you're a police officer and you you have no spiritual awareness, uh, you have no Christianity, those are the days that will drive you into a lane that you don't wanna be. Those are the days that for me as a Christian that I had to leave the room and spend some time uh, asking God to give me the strength and asking God to give me the courage to continue that interview. Without letting my inner self come out too badly, there. That is something that um,
0: I've really wanted to to focus on. You know, as you know, this podcast is based on the hypothesis that if you do this job for long enough, you're going to become cynical, nihilistic, or a substance abuser. And, and when I say substance abuser, once again, it's not just Physical substances like medication or alcohol, but, you know, even stuff that releases a lot of dopamine, you know, so um, fornication or video games. that, that You're going to become addicted to that, and eventually that's going to drive you down, you know, a pit of depression, right? We all know that. Um, and if you don't have Christ, then you cannot avoid that if you do this job long enough. That's my, that's my, um, my goal with all this. And... It seems like you're a really good example of of this, right? Because you did this job seven years, no spiritual background at all, right? Or rather, you, you know, you had a little bit of a background, but you weren't, you know, did, didn't care about Christ, didn't care about God. Um, maybe just kind of knew God existed, but it didn't didn't care, right? Am I putting words in your mouth?
1: I think because of what had happened uh, to me as a child. Uh, as far as my spirituality was concerned I would acknowledge that there may be a God but I didn't want any part of it yeah. or him and I didn't want the any part of that in my life and of course during that first seven years uh, uh it led to, drink, you know, excessive drinking. Uh, it led to uh, a mindset that I was a uh, entity to in my own, uh, that anything that happened was uh, my own doing and what I did, and that's the way I liked it. Uh, Once I became a Christian and went back into law enforcement, I think that's when I realized how bad that first seven years was. And you know as well as I do that, you know, uh, if we look at retired police officers and look at them who have done the job for 20, 25, 30, in my case 40 years, uh, you find a, a large majority end up eating their gun after they retire. And and that's because they have no hope. Uh, all of that stuff that we do every day as a law enforcement officer builds up and comes back to us. And if you don't have a good spiritual background to fall back on, you're not going to survive it.
0: That's something that, uh, one of the previous guests on my podcast, uh, put up. It's one, it's one of the things he said is that if that his purpose for this world is not this job, but this job does contribute to his purpose, right? mm-hmm um, and so, what, what we mean by that is that in you, you cannot you cannot make this job the reason for which you exist, um, and if you do that, you know, even you know retired police officers who have full pension and, and everything just have to sit to sit down. Watch and drink beer and watch TV and getting a paycheck, or or will you know end up eating their gun or doing something? Uh, you know, once again, other references, Danny Jones doing career suicide, doing something that's gonna maybe get put their pension in, in, in doubt or mess up their marriage, or and you know, without Christ being your purpose, then everything else is fleeting, right? Right, if you um, this is something that I've really been reading in Ecclesiastes recently. Even noble things, you know, I, I think that police work is very much a noble thing. If you can, contri- if you continue to pursue that as the reason for which you exist, even that is going to consume you. Um, even if you're trying to do the most noble things, because you know, we're eventually we grow old. Eventually, we can't do this job, even if we've done it. 40 years right um, and we and we we can't make this job our end goal because you know at the at the end of the day what remains is heaven not this world right, right. Um, I, I can't remember who said this uh, there's an Orthodox monk uh, who's quoted as saying, i have never been happy in this world or no no i have never been joyful in this world because he knows what lies beyond right um i think with that we're going to take just a quick break
1: righty and we're back okay uh, I'd like to touch on something that you said right before we took the break uh, about the job I know my last uh, part of law enforcement was all done when I was a believing Christian when I was active in the churches and it What you said reminded me of uh, this time eight years ago. Uh, it was during the summer. And I was sitting on the back porch about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning by myself the way I normally did because that's when I normally work. But I got to thinking about this retirement thing, and I had to ask myself the question, and I did. And I asked myself, is this job what I do, or is this job who I am? And it really worried me, uh, to be honest with you, that it was who I was. And after I did retire, several months later, uh, I realized, nope, it was just a job, Uh who I, Thank God. Yeah, thank <laughs> God, because it, it would really have been a bad thing. And I, And I think too many people in law enforcement do retire. And it turns out that the job was who they were. They didn't have anything else to fall back on. And when the job went away, their purpose went away. I was fortunate enough that I found and had another purpose, and I was able to put more time into serving the church, serving God. Uh, when when the opportunity came up to uh, talk with you before you went in, we well, actually went into the police department and been able to talk to you since you have been a police officer has. uh giving me another purpose. And so it's a matter of searching for that purpose and having that purpose. And without God, a retired police officer have a hard time dealing with life in general.
0: Well, one of the things that I touched on with uh, Dr. Mitchell is that this job, because it is so embodied, right? Like we have our vestments, our uniform, we have our, we have our badge. We have, you know, our. We actually do good things in the world. Um, that it's easy to form a, a, a religion out of it, right? Right. Because you know, as the priest is the intercessor between the laity and God, we become the intercessor between the public and the evil. So it's easy to, to form this pseudo religion out of police work and then you, you find guys that you know all they do is find their purpose in, in this this job and, and I don't hate to say it that this is not the the reason for which you should exist. There, there are greater things beyond this and you've done this job for a long long time um, and what let's say that we're there. let's say that I am someone who, you know, all I do is think about police work, how to make the next arrest, how to go about doing X, Y, Z with the job. What are some small steps that you can take to 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 get away from that?
1: The first thing you have to do is tell them to set down their beer <laughs> <laughs> and, and let's talk. And. Let the officer tell you about his experience as a police officer. And then start to let him know that there is a greater thing. That, yes, you are a police officer. And, yes, your job is vital to society. I know it's a cliché the thin blue line that stands between order and chaos and that is the police officer but it is not the end all that there has to be something in your life other than that that will allow you to do that job and to do it correctly uh God gave me the ability to do the job. God gave me the ability to survive the job emotionally, spiritually. And I think you're very, very much on point where a lot of times we would want to make the job our religion uh make the job something that we worship Uh, and i don't think that's different from a lot of other professions and to tell you the truth because there's a lot of folks out there that uh, their god is uh the money and so but for the police officer they're looked to or uh, by society as that order keeper. And then you start to feel like, oh, okay, well, maybe we are God. Yeah. That's
0: and, another fault to make, too. Yeah, that's yeah. something.
1: And when you get to that point of thinking we are God, that's when we start getting in trouble. Uh, That's when we start drawing our own lines. And I think that's much easier to do if you have nothing else to fall back on. Uh, If you don't have a good marriage, if you don't have a strong family identity, if you don't have God to fall back on, you're going to find yourself flopping around out there in the breeze.
0: That's something that um, I'm very thankful for, is that we have family in town. We have a really good church in town, as you and I both know. Yep. <laughs> uh, we have a, even even outside of that, we, we've got a good sports system here. I've got friends from outside police work uh, and outside of church that are in this area and so that's helped me when I need to just not do this right Ken one of the things that uh, I wanted to touch on is that uh, I've actually gotten a couple questions from people that I've been testing this podcast with and that is uh, what are some of the either spiritual or even physical practices that that we can do to help center ourselves on Christ and not center ourselves, um, you know, just solely on police work, right? Or if, or if we're in a call or we're in a situation where, you know, oh man, we, we need something to get ourselves out of this. And I, I want to really open this question up. It can be practices that you have in your marriage to keep the marriage going. It can be practices you have to keep the relationship with your kids, Um, open and I really want to make this open. So, you know, everything from crossing yourself to you know, what, what are a couple of things that that you've done?
1: Well, there's nothing more orthodox in the Anglican religion, denomination than an ex-Baptist. Uh, of course we are a liturgical worship. And so, it's not a matter of sitting and listening, hopefully listening, to what's going on in the service. Uh, Our services uh, are interactive. You can't just sit there. And there are things during the service that are very meaningful for me. Uh, Bowing to the cross. Bowing... To the name of jesus kneeling when i pray crossing myself these are things that are outward signs and when i do these things outwardly what i'm doing is i'm teaching my heart and my mind to bow to christ to kneel before the cross. To submit oneself to Christ. To submit oneself to Christ. And sometimes you find that so there's some people that are just too darn proud to do that. And they want. And uh, I can say I'm very orthodox. Uh, I'm probably more orthodox than 70, 80% of people in our, in our particular community. Uh, congregation, but it helps me to relate to Christ in the worship service. Uh, finding pra- you know prayer, daily prayer, not just on Sunday, but daily prayer helps. Uh, I think that uh, everyone needs to find a time, during their day to pray, to take some time and submit themselves, and to take some time to admit to God that I, I need help, um, whether you do it with a devotional or, in my case as an Anglican, uh, with the Book of Common Prayer, I have daily offices that can be said three times a day. And that helps me and anchors me uh, in this life that I'm living.
0: Yeah, Not to be a dead horse, because I've mentioned this a couple times, but confession of sin, this is the practice of vocalizing sin to someone else is huge, I think, for me. Because it is... Because there's there's something powerful about not only telling telling God directly, but also saying it to someone in front of you, because it it helps embody. Now, you know, um, I've had a couple questions about this, but a priest is not God. He is the intercessor between God and la- laity, right? And so when I vocalize my confession of sin to a priest, I am you know I am saying to God through him what you know how I've messed up and I think that's powerful because we're, we're not just in our head right like we know this as police officers that our the way that we re- interact with the world is not just through our brains mm-hmm. we was with, with our hands and with our feet and um, we feel you know physical pain on the job we see people suffering and you know we, we smell it we Uh, we touch it. Right. Um, and so that, that I think it's important to have all the senses in your faith. Right. Uh, so that because the, the way in which we interact with the world, it's very physical. Our faith needs to be that way as well, because that is the most, if we are destined for, um, for heaven, then, you know, that's going to be a physical reality, not just a mental one. Right. Right. And so, and hopefully it helps remind us of that, that eventually, you know, there is, there is a place beyond here because, you know, as Jefferson says, two things are certain in life, death and taxes. (laughs) Right. And you,
1: you, you mentioned something there about the census and that was one thing that, uh, like I say, when I was in seminary I got really uh interested in studying worship and like I say that's when I found out I wasn't a Baptist, but because I was looking for a worship experience that it incorporated all of my senses. I didn't want to just go to a worship service and hear. I want it to see it, I want it to smell it, I want it to taste it, I want it for it to be a physical experience, and I, you know, I found that uh, in our liturgy, and what was important, what you said, I think, is there's a need for uh confession on a personal level, and there's also a need for confession on a corporate level. Uh, I know in our liturgy during our confession, it starts off, we have sinned, we have violated this trust we have violated these laws and by what we have done and left undone and and so that, that that's an important part of healing yourself spiritually the hardest part for a non-christian becoming a christian is being able to say, I have sinned, and I need help. And for a police officer, it's doubly hard to say, I need help. That That is something that
0: I've heard over and over and over from people, is that for a police officer, it's, it's extremely hard to admit you need help. Because we're used to being taught that... You need to be able to handle everything by yourself. Uh, I've been told that in the police academy and on the uh, my own, especially the, the area that I work, we're so separated out. You know, I I have worked calls that I did I had no business working by myself by myself, and I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that because we we do need help. We we need help from our brothers and sisters around us, from you know our priests who are our fathers and and from you know father god himself right Mm -hmm. um well ken we're about to wrap up uh, but there's one thing that hopefully we can end up on a lighter note okay Uh, i want to uh want to ask you ken you've you've done this job for a long long time what is the just wildest craziest story that you have
1: good grief the wildest craziest um My first patrol car was a 1968 Plymouth Roadrunner with a 440 Hemi engine in it. And at the time, DeKalb County was dry. Atlanta was wet. And so a lot of times on 2 or 3 o'clock on uh, a Friday or uh, a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, we would sit at the line the county line and wait for the people to come out of atlanta and we were sitting i was driving this time and my partner steve was with me and uh this uh firebird 400 came underneath The interstate bridge that we were sitting on and it was on at that point by the time we got behind him we had exceeded 130 miles an hour we were chasing him (laughs) northbound on 85 and i remember dispatch coming on we were we told we had told them that we had crossed into gwinnett county and they told us to break off the chase, let Cab County, Georgia State Patrol take over. Well, my partner, being who he was, (laughs) just uh, took his left foot and kicked the radio out from underneath the dashboard, and so we were no longer in communications. The chase lasted. We went through three roadblocks. Uh, We jumped the median twice. We jumped a ramp once. Uh, Georgia State Patrol said that when we passed them at one point, uh, one of their units had clocked us at 147. And we were going northbound, and we continued going northbound. Two state trooper cars got wrecked in this thing. And uh, we were a quarter of a mile from the South Carolina state line uh, when he finally dropped a piston and the chase ended and i had been telling my partner the whole time in a different time different era i kept telling my partner i said when we get this guy stopped i'm just gonna beat the ever-loving daylights out of him and uh he finally stopped I pulled over and started to step out of the car, and my legs wouldn't hold me up, and I actually fell to the ground, and this character actually told us, he said, well, if I'd have made it to the South Carolina state line, which was late Hartwell Bridge, he said, uh, I'd have been home free. And this Georgia state trooper snatched him up and put him in the car, and he said, let me show you home free. And uh <laughs> we drove, we drove up to the South Carolina state line and there were 15 South Carolina state troopers crossed in a, sitting on the bridge, northbound and southbound with all lanes blocked. There was no way to get through. He said, the only way you'd have got across that river son, was if you were swimming. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was a crazy chase. It? Yeah. <laughs> it, that was a crazy chase. And, uh, it, my car was a total wreck. Yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> I, it, the, my car was a total wreck by the time it was over because the, the frame had twisted and the windows had popped out, uh, and it <laughs> it was it, it was fun to be honest with you. But it was it was it was fun. It was scary and um, like they always say, the good guys won. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Ken, with that we're gonna end uh, but thank you for coming on and for those of you who have any follow-up um, or any questions remember you can email remaining sane podcast at gmail.com once again that's remaining sane podcast at gmail.com or find us at Twitter at remaining sane pc this has been the remaining sane finding peace in our chaos podcast no, Blessed rest of your day.